Tonight we meet a soldier whose title is a centurion. Now what in the world did that mean? Well, in ancient Rome, the centurion meant captain of about a hundred, and the Roman centurion was captain over a hundred foot soldiers in a legion. The centurion was loyal and courageous, beginning as a soldier in the army, and then working their way up the ranks. They were noticed by their general for their skill and courage in battle, and then were made officers. Soldiers were appointed as centurions by virtue of their bravery, loyalty, character, and prowess in battle. The ordinary duties of the centurion were to drill his men, inspect their arms, food, and clothing, and to command them in the camp and in the fields. Centurions were held to high standards of conduct and were expected to fight on the front lines with their men. In fact, the centurion's designated place in formation was at the end of the very front row. So as a result, Roman centurions were paid well and held in high esteem, and they experienced high rates of injury and death during war. The combination of wealth, power, and prestige made them influential in society. Now tonight, we meet a centurion who, even though that he's a Gentile, actually has more faith than anyone in Israel. And even though that he is a man of authority, he completely submits his authority to Jesus. So there you go. A little bit about centurions, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, you're an awesome God, and we, we thank you for Jesus tonight. We, we thank you for the love that you had for us that sent him. We, we thank you that you held nothing back when you let him die for us on the cross. We thank you that we matter so much to you, though we don't know why at times. We thank you for your continual pursuing us in this life. Lord knows we need you, Lord. We make mistakes time and time and time again, and yet you are always there to forgive, to strengthen, to lift up, and to renew. Today, night, tonight, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. You know, I, I love the way we start off this service. Uh, I mean, there's nothing clearer to me than to sing some songs and hear that we're forgiven and then get that hug from God at communion. I, I, my music minister one time said that coming to communion where he promises to be present is like getting hug from God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you just need a hug, especially when life kind of hits you in different ways, especially when life gets complicated. Sometimes we just need that reassurance that he's still got us, that he's still got our situations, that he still loves us. Okay, so we're picking up tonight in Matthew chapter 8. Um, we're going to begin um, in verse 5, but I just want to kind of give you, since it's been a couple weeks, a little bit of a review. Matthew, unlike the other Gospels, uh, at least unlike Mark and, and Luke, is not necessarily a chronological description of how everything went down. It's, it's more Matthew making the case that Jesus is the Christ. And so he uses a lot of the events, he puts them kind of in order, but it's really more of a topical presentation. And so if you kind of think through Matthew already, he gives the credentials of Jesus right at the beginning, right? He gives them the genealogy, it says, this is the Christ. And then he goes on to give his birth story, his birth narrative, and then a bunch of witnesses that testify that Jesus is who he says he is. And then right from there, he goes to the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, okay, not only does he have the credentials, not only have people testified about this guy, but listen to him teach and be amazed and be perplexed and then be comforted all in the same time. And, and their response to his teaching was that they were awestruck. Nobody ever teaches like this guy because he taught as one who had authority. 
And after Matthew did that, he says, okay, if that's not enough, let me show you some of the stuff that he's done. And he goes to the miracles, and that's where we are now. We talked a couple weeks back about him cleansing the leper. And even as we go through these first three miracles, one of the things that you'll notice is that each one is about one of the undesirables in Israel. The people that people look down upon, the people that just weren't part of the in-group. And certainly the first one was the leper. They were walking around with signs saying, stay away from me. Leprosy, leprosy, leprosy. Can you imagine the psychological damage that would do to somebody? Nobody's supposed to get close to me. In fact, I'd hurt them if they got close to me. So for my whole life, I'll just alienate myself from everybody except for others who have leprosy. And not only did Jesus heal this guy, he healed him by touching him which nobody could possibly have imagined, that Jesus would get intimate and even go so far as touching the person who was sick, who was contagious, but who desperately needed his healing, his comfort, and his salvation. The next undesirable that we'll take a look at today that Jesus heals is the Gentile or the centurion. And so I'll begin in verse 5, and we'll just talk about it a little bit. When he entered Capernaum, which seems to be Jesus' home base at this point. Many think he was staying at Peter's house, actually, um, because of later heal his mother-in-law and different things. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Most people think when he said Lord there, it wasn't so much an acclamation that he believed totally that Jesus was Lord, but it was a sign of reverence. It was a sign of, I think you can help me. It's a sign of, I've heard so many things about you, and I want to believe you as Lord, but it was just a sign of, of respect. My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to them, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Now, this put the centurion in a little bit of a bind. He knew that Jews weren't supposed to go to his house because he was a Gentile, and it would immediately make him unclean if he went to his house. On the other hand, he had a servant lying there that needed his help, and so he was conflicted. He was like, I, I just came here to see if you would do something. And all of a sudden, Jesus puts him in this awkward position. Would Jesus really come? Was he asking a question? But immediately, the centurion responded, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to the other, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I had a professor in seminary one time that asked, I think, a very unique question. He said, how big will you let your Jesus be? And I say that because I think we all put our faith in God, our trust in Jesus in a little box. And we say, I will believe Jesus for these things. Or, or I will believe God for these things. And to be fair, we put salvation in there mainly unless we do something really rotten and then we're continually beating ourselves up and we hope he forgives us, right? But mostly we believe that we're forgiven and that it'll take us to heaven. Mostly we believe that he loves us except there are times where, again, because of our sin, because of how far we've gone in it, we feel like maybe God can't possibly love us. But for most of us, we have this little box and we trust him for certain things in there. And if they're outside that box, we freak out. And we act as if God's not real or that he doesn't exist or that he doesn't have power or that he doesn't care. And so as you go through these miracles, what you'll see is that Jesus tries to do some construction on that box. And he, at least for his disciples, he tries to take out one wall and then another wall and then another wall until there's nothing left, until they just believe in Jesus, period. 
where there is no box anymore, but that they just trust that he is God, that he loves them, that he cares, that he sees, that he's able, that he's got them, and that he's got the situation. So I'll ask you again, how big will you let your Jesus be for you? Do you trust him with your finances, or do you worry? Do you worry about finances? Do you trust him with your relationships, especially after you say something really dumb or do something really dumb? Do you trust him at work? How about this? Do you trust him with politics? How big is your Jesus? When you go to the doctor and he says you have cancer or you have to have this surgery, how will you, big will you let your Jesus be for you? Because the reality is that Jesus is huge and he is unencumbered by boxes, right? He is able. He is the creator of the universe. And if you just think about that, he says, Diet Coke me. And, and there would be a Diet Coke, but unlike the article I just read, it would not cause strokes early and it would not cause um, dementia. <laughs> You'd think that would motivate me. It is. I'm trying. But the reality is, I can say Diet Coke, except the kind that doesn't hurt me, right? And you could speak it into being and it'd be right there. If you're hungry, you could say pizza and he'd give you the best pizza in the world. He spoke things into being. There is nothing that is too hard for him. We matter more than anything to him. He sent his son to die for you. So there's nothing he can't do. There's nothing that he will not do. And yet sometimes we struggle in trusting him. So the centurion comes along. Now, I remember the leper had to experience Jesus' touch to believe that he would be healed, right? The centurion simply said, just say it. Just say the word. One of the things that we do here that's kind of cool is we have an anointing and that's something in James 5. It says, if you or any one of you are sick, bring that person to the elders and anoint him with oil and pray over him that he might be healed. And the prayer of the faithful will make him well. So it's an awesome part of scripture. And, and since, uh, I don't know, four, five, six years now we've been doing that, we've seen God do incredible miracles for people in this church. It's just nuts. I, personally, I don't know how it works. I, I just know that we pray over somebody and, and do what he says in James 5. And then God does this amazing thing. But the interesting thing about that is there's people that, even though they've done it once, they say, hey, could we do it again? Because I don't know if the first time worked. And I said, well, I could pray over you. And they said, no, 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 I want the oil again. And, and there's coolness in that because, again, it's part of James 5. But it's also kind of making this a mystical, magical thing that if I don't have the oil, maybe the prayer won't work, right? We get in danger when we start putting God again in the box. God only works if we have oil, right? God only works if we do the certain prayer. God only works if we do the certain thing. No, God just works. And he hears your prayers. And he loves you. And except for that his goal is to, make us, to get us to heaven, and so sometimes he says no because of those things, right? He says yes, yes, and always yes. So the centurion just believed that because Jesus said it, it would happen. And Jesus went nuts. It says that he, he marveled, which is a human emotion. So here's Jesus, the son of God. We kind of picture him as this guy that does it. We know that he feels. We just don't picture that he feels, right? And here he is marveling. Like, he's blown away. God, you didn't tell me this guy would believe like this. This is awesome. And he's all excited. And he's blown away. And he tells everybody who's there, there's not anybody in Israel who believes like this Gentile. Do you think that offended anybody? Absolutely, it offended some people. He goes on to offend them worse. He says... I tell you, many will come from the east and west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, everybody in the world, there's people from all over the world that are going to come and hang out with our fathers, the fathers of Israel, reclining at the banquet table, which was an Old Testament um, 
prophecy from Isaiah that in its way that many people at this time depicted the, the, the next life or the, the time with God in heaven, the Pharisees, those who believed in the afterlife, reclining with him at this banquet table where food and drink abound, right? And so uh, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will be thrown out into outer darkness, hell, in that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, two signs of incredible mourning and distress. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, what's interesting about this statement about the Jews is they believed that because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were saved, right? They were their spiritual fathers. They were part of Israel. They got circumcised. They were part of God's family. And Jesus is telling them now, what? It's not good enough? We can be kicked out? What are you talking about? Again, Jesus is just saying that it's by faith, and he's starting to outline this teaching for his disciples and for everybody who would hear. It matters what we believe. It matters what's in the heart. And then by extension here, he's not just talking about the Jews then, is he? He's talking about Christians. We are the 21st century believers in Jesus. But is it enough just to come to church? Is it enough to go on a mission trip? Is it enough to do good works or care about your sister or whatever it might be? And I'll say this again, nothing you do is good enough. You're like, what? Only Jesus is good enough. Only Jesus. We have so much sin, the reality of things are. We have so much brokenness, so much rebellion, so many times where we put him beyond our back. The only thing we have to offer is saying, God, I'm sorry, and clinging to Jesus in faith. And upon that profession, Jesus goes, all right, I got you. And you're forgiven, and you're renewed, and you're strengthened. Let's go get the world. And by saying, let's go get the world, he's saying, follow me. And that's hard. That's the hard part of being a believer. It's hard to follow. And so you'll follow for a while, and then you'll blow it. You've got to run back to Jesus and get forgiven, right? And then you go, okay, I'm going to try it again. And then you go back out, and then you blow it, and you have to run back to Jesus. And every time, Jesus wraps you up in his arms and says, I got you. I love you. You are forgiven. See, the reality is there's nothing that we can do that does that. And so when they started looking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, no, 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 is that's us. He says, it's not good enough. So to Christians, I'd say today, it's not good enough that you're baptized. It's not good enough that you just go to church twice a year. It's not good enough that you went on that mission trip that one time. It matters what's going on in here. Luther says in the Catholics as well, from church fathers and Catholicism, but they talk about a, a, a visible and invisible church. And it's kind of a helpful way to think. And every church is visible. All you guys are the visible church. But the invisible church is made up of those who actually believe. And every Sunday at every church, the visible and invisible church are not always the same. People come for a lot of different reasons to church. They come from family obligations. They come to make mom happy on Mother's Day. They come because they're seeking something, but they don't quite yet know or they don't quite yet believe, and they're seeking there's some that are pursuing sin so drastically that they've hardened their hearts against God. Every Sunday, there's the believing church, the invisible, and also the visible. And what Jesus is just simply saying is it matters what's going on in here. 
So wherever you are in life, and again, John the Baptist's message and Jesus' message and Peter's first message after the resurrection, repent. Run back to Jesus. Let him heal and forgive and renew and strengthen so that you can go out and face the world again. It's a big deal. He starts, and he starts this teaching with this amazing centurion that just believed without the boxes that Jesus could do anything. Then he goes on and he heals another undesirable at this time. It was healing of a woman. I know you think, why was that so undesirable? Well, at this time in the history of the world, uh, the scriptures were the most women-friendly thing out there, okay? Women were viewed in many ways as a step above, oh, a slave. And they were a... um, they were necessary for family, and they raised your kids, and they uh, were an important part of the, the, the family dynamic. Um, but they weren't, in general, uh, people that held jobs. They weren't, in general, as valuable as the males when it would come to court cases and rights. And so there was very much a, a dual kind of uh, oh, law code for the woman than for the male. And yet Jesus comes to this woman, Peter's mom. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and rose and began to serve him. Now, I like that, man. This was not a lazy lady. She was just sick. She was, like, really having a bad time. And Jesus goes, you're healed. And she got up, and she started serving everybody. I mean, that's a mom right there. She's awesome. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with the word, and he healed all those who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And one of the things I want you to get out of these first three undesirables that Jesus heals, and the reason that Matthew did it in such a way, is to say that Jesus is for everybody. Right? That nobody, nobody's not good enough for Jesus. That you can't out his grace. No matter what you've done in your life, no matter how far you've gone away from him, Jesus still loves you. God still loves you, and his call is simply this, return to me, and I've got you. And that looks like repentance, and it looks like submitting ourselves to him, and it looks like following. He says, return to me, and I will forgive, and I will renew, and I will strengthen, and I'll make sure you're with me. This is God's incredible promise. It's his incredible love. Jesus is for everybody. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, oh, one more thing, I guess, just in verse... um, 16 says, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. Demons is something that we'll come across here. It was very prevalent at this time. Uh, many people are cast, had demons cast out of them. Demons are, um, are Satan, or are the angels that fell from heaven with Satan, those that follow Satan's um, desire to rebel against God. And so God, along with Satan, kicked them out of heaven. Uh, they are now called demons, and they are working with Satan for our harm. I, I say often that God has a purpose for your life, and God has a plan for your life, and, and so does Satan. Satan's plan is to destroy you, right? He wants to destroy you. That, that's his win. And if he can get you to reject God, if he can get you to turn your back on God, and you die, he wins. And so there's two people that are playing and buying for your souls. There's God and there's Satan. And Satan, here's the deal about him. His fate has already been sealed. He's going to be thrown in that pit of fire. He knows it's true. It's going to happen. His angels, they know it's true. They know they're going to the same place. 
His fate, his fate is sealed. Their fate is sealed. And they are mad. And they want to take as many of us with them as they can. And so the reality is that demons have this ability, I guess, to somehow latch on to human beings, and not just human beings, but we'll see in a little while, animals, pigs. Uh, uh, we'll see a little further on, even dwellings, they have this ability. And there, I'm going to stop short of saying that I know exactly how this all works, but I don't. I just know that the demons are actively working to cause doubt, to create fear, to lead us away from God. And when a person, I guess, gives them enough of an opening, they're able to latch on in a very powerful way that causes torment and fear, anxiety, and, and they do so to destroy the person in every possible way, eventually with their life. They use dwellings to abide to create, again, the same fear and hopelessness. They, I don't know what they do animals for other than to create fear, I guess, in the case of the pigs. But just to say this, they're a very real entity but I don't want you to fear them. Because when Jesus died, he claimed victory over Satan, over death, over sin. And as he claimed victory over Satan, he claims victory over all these demons as well. And while we should respect them as an adversary, we never need to fear them because God's got us. And his protection oversees us. And he walks with us. And so anyway, you'll see as Jesus goes through his ministry, he casts out tons of demons, and, and that's just a part of it. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Uh, again, the Sea of Galilee, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, my main focus in life is not material things. He's hearing to this guy. They're not even really a big deal. They don't even hit on my radar. I don't know where we're staying tonight. It's probably over there. You, you know, we're just going to put down some, well, I'm just going to lay in the grass. This is what I'm going to do. And hopefully it's not too wet in the morning. I mean, he was just somebody who totally relied on either people to take him in or just roughing it. You know, he was staying in the garden that night that he was betraying. It was just something that he was. He wasn't tied to this world. He wasn't tied to material things. I heard a story of a dad that, um, just through some financial issues, spends his night sleeping in the desert. And uh, as you imagine, the, his ex-wife is not all excited when the children go visit him. And I said, and so she was, in the reality, we had a nice conversation, and she can't control all things. But if, if she can uh, encourage him to get a place, that would be great. But I said, half the kids think of it as camping, you know. But this is a guy that's not really tied to a whole lot of stuff. I, I just simply share that to say, how would you do if Jesus said, follow me, but I don't know where we're staying tonight? And it's not just tonight, it's all week, next few years. I just want you to follow me. And I want you to give up all this stuff. You're probably not going to be able to keep a job during that time, so just let your 401 go. I mean, just, it's probably got enough in it right now. Don't worry about it, you know. Uh, might lose your house because of the house payment thing. Uh, but just come follow me. It's amazing in our culture how difficult that would be, isn't it? We're really tied to material things. We're really tied to our homes. Why? Where we live, it's our shelter. Some of us put even undue uh, value beyond that. We're really tied to our things, especially our car. It gets us around. We're really tied to stuff. We're really tied to our retirement, whatever that looks like. 
could we really, if Jesus said, just follow me, could we go? Could we just follow him and just trust him with everything? The right answer is yes. But I'm just sharing, it would be a tough deal. And that's what he was outlining for this guy. He's saying, I, I don't have any place to lay my head tonight. Do you really want to follow me? See, a lot of disciples would follow these Pharisees and they would make some money. I mean, they would earn a reputation and then they would earn respect and then they would earn some dollars and cents to go along with that that would kind of afford a nice little living. Jesus wasn't selling that. He was just sharing himself. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, there's a couple of things with this. It was super, super important for a Jewish man, especially, um, but for all the Jewish family, to, to spend time grieving over the one that was lost, the one that went to, be the, to the afterlife, right? It was super important to grieve that for a week, to take care of all the burial arrangements. It was the responsibility of the oldest son to make sure that happened. It was, it was expected. It was, it was something that even if you were a priest, you could blow off church for. I use church, but all their priestly duties, right? You could say, hey, I, I just got to go do this thing, and, and you guys got to cover it. You were never allowed to blow off your priestly duties, ever, except if your father died. And so this guy is saying, hey, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, many commentators, based on that fact, believe that maybe the father wasn't dead yet and he had to wait, right, for his father to die. And so he's being the responsible son. Again, a, a high expectation in the Jewish community. But even if that was it, Jesus was saying, it's more important to follow me than it is to take care of dad. And even if it was the first one, and, and which would have been like nobody could have ever comprehended just leaving that in that midst of that one week, Jesus would have been saying, following me is still more important than burying your dad. I'm more important than anything, he would say. It's a big deal. You know, as you go through this, does anybody find this more challenging sometimes than Sunday morning, right? I mean, when Jesus just kind of lays it out there and says, this is what it means to follow me, and you're like, holy cow, I stink at this, Right? Which is, then we run back to Jesus and get forgiven and, and, and we go forward. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. He says, I gotta be first. And so right there, he expands for his disciples what it means to follow him. A lot of people I know kind of give lip service to God. Yeah, 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 I'll get to it. Yeah, yeah, I know that's important, but it's just not in my budget right now. Or yeah, 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 I know I need to be nice to them or I know I need to forgive. I just can't quite get there. And we've got all these excuses and all these rationalizations, all these justifications for why we don't follow. But Jesus says this, I need you to follow. Right? You're forgiven of everything. Follow me, he says. And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. In Lake Galilee, it's, it's kind of a downslope from all these... Um, well, it's kind of down at 700 feet below sea level, I guess. And so the winds, winds come whipping through the canyons there and it, it kind of just wreaks havoc on the sea. And, it, and so storms come up very quickly and very powerfully and it's very scary. And there's lots of uh, shipwrecks at this point. And so these are seasoned fishermen, a lot of them, that are on the boat with Jesus. And the weather started getting rough in the tiny ship. It, it was tough. 
right? And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. So these seasoned fishermen, I have to, I have to just give them this. They trusted Jesus enough to help because these seasoned fishermen went to a carpenter to help in the middle of the storm, okay? And rashly, it doesn't speak. So they were, they were trusting Jesus with something here. And I remember when I was a kid, I was, I was we, my grandparents and my uncle, they lived on this lake and and, uh, and so I had this little 10 horsepower motor in this little fishing boat that they, my grandpa let me kind of tool around the lake with and have fun with and stuff like that. Well, anyway, the weather started, or the weather started getting kind of dark and stuff like that. And my uncle said, you better head home or otherwise, you know, you're not going to be able to make it. So, so I got in this little boat and I started heading across. I'm like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make, I'm going to make it. But then all of a sudden the winds came up and they just stirred everything up. And the waves, they were high, and they were lapping into the boat, and I was freaked out. I was trying to remember everything my grandpa had ever taught me about navigating waves. And I was like, okay, I just need to do this a little bit right. And I was going over the waves, and, and, and I, I was just sure the whole thing was going to capsize. And I was praying, and I was like, Lord, just help me make it to the house, or my dad's going to kill me, you know, all those kind of things. Um, but I was thinking, that's me, and I was freaking out, and those were just little waves, for seasoned fishermen to get afraid, it had to be pretty serious, pretty scary. And so they cried out, knowing that this was beyond their scope. This was beyond their ability to contain. So this wasn't a little swarm and they just wanted to wake up Jesus. This was life and death. And so at least they trusted Jesus enough to say, Hey, carpenter, can you help? And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? And I'm like, look around, right? We're going to die. That's why we're afraid. And then he says, oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the, and the waves obey him? So I'm going to go back to this little box. Everything Jesus does in the next few chapters blows apart this little box. We trust you to heal people. We've seen it. We trust you to cast out demons, and nobody does that. We, 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 we trust you to teach us the truth of God in ways that we can't comprehend. We think you are the Messiah. We believe you are the Messiah. But we had no idea that you could speak to the wind and the waves and have them stop. And it wasn't just, at least from the, from the Greek, it wasn't just the, the winds and the waves, they started dying down and the storm started going away. It was instantaneous calm. That means the wind stopped. And usually if the wind stops, it takes a little while for the waves to stop, right? The wind stopped and the waves stopped all at the same time. Seasoned fishermen had never seen anything like it. And it blew their mind. Who is this guy, right? That even the winds and the sea obey him. And he started expanding for them who he was. He was the savior of the world. He was God. Nothing is impossible for him. And he chipped out another one of those walls that limited their belief, limited their trust in him. And he said, just believe. And then he said, Actually, he said, why are you so afraid, oh, you of little faith? So I'll just ask you, in your lives right now, what is it that makes you afraid? For some people, it's relationships, right? Other people, it's what the doctor said. Other people, it's finances. All things that we can't control. 
all things that we worry about and have anxiety over? Why is it that we don't have peace? Because we are afraid and then we struggle with our little faith. Because we've said we trust you for this, Jesus, but this seems a little hard. And so we fret and we worry and we don't trust that he's got us. We don't trust that he's got our situation and we feel like we have to control. And so Jesus would come to us in kindness, right? Oh, you little faith, why do you doubt? All right, a couple questions. Here we go. If it is more important to follow Jesus than bury your father, how does that work with the commandment of honoring your mother and father? It's a great question. Uh, I don't know if this is, okay. Um, so, Okay, so the answer to that is that we always follow what God says. And so uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there was a couple instances where God says, hey, obeying me is more important than one of the commandments that I've listed. For example, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son. God himself was speaking and asking this. Abraham had no idea he wasn't going to really have him kill his son. But he obeyed. What was he going to do? He's going to commit murder because God had asked him to commit murder, right? And so he obeyed God. The first, uh, one of the ways the seminary says, the first table always outweighs the second table. Talking about the Ten Commandments. The first three commandments, right? The love for God always outweighs love for our neighbor. Let me give you another one. In the Old Testament, um, I forget his name, just starts with a J. Anyway, he made this vow. <laughs> he made this vow that the first thing that came out of his house, he would sacrifice, right? Just a, in celebration for this amazing victory. He made a vow to God, a promise to God. And he thought it maybe be the dog that he didn't like or something like that, right? And he'd be glad to sacrifice that puppy, right? But the reality is his daughter came out and he was grieved to the heart. He was perplexed because he had made a promise to God, now, you'd think you could break that promise so that you wouldn't commit murder. But nowhere is he rebuked for keeping his promise to God. The first command, or the first three command, always outweigh the second three, or last seven. Uh, when, when Moses was going out of, the prom, or out of slavery and out of Egypt, he asked all the Egyptians to give him gold and clothing and all sorts of cool stuff, right? And, and the people gladly let him borrow it. I don't know what they needed my, uh, my gold dishes for, but go ahead and borrow it. You know, take it, you know. And it basically plundered all of Egypt. And they did so, even though it was stealing, because God says, I'm giving you to this as your spoil. You always obey God, even over and above some of the commands. And be fair, this happens almost never. This is not something you will ever be asked to struggle with, I'm pretty sure, right? Unless, and if you do hear from God personally and ask you to go kill someone, please talk to me first, because it may have been a bad burrito the night before, right? In general, God will never ask you to contradict something that he has done. In fact, that's how you can tell a false prophet in most cases. But there have been times in Scripture where to follow God's first set, or follow God, sometimes he asks us to do some of the craziest things. And so... We honor mom and dad, and it's super important. But to be honest is, who do you, are you supposed to love more, mom and dad or God? So we follow Jesus. Okay? So we follow Jesus. 
precious, I, I promise you, in this life for you guys, taking care of mom and dad is following Jesus. And I can't imagine a situation where he would ask you to choose between the two. Um, but I would say this, if, if taking care of mom and dad keep you in a sinful lifestyle, I don't know, maybe they do drugs or whatever, and they keep you in a kind of an awkward situation, and it causes you to stumble over and over and over, might you not set up boundaries so that you can follow God first and take care of them second? I mean, that's a pretty out there scenario, but there are cases, right? So when following God and following mom and dad or whatever else in life conflict, following God wins, always. You protect your heart and then you go out and you try to love others. It, it, it's kind of a, a complex thing, but, but it's super important that you understand that. Um, let me see if I can get some more. Uh, Jephthah was his name from Judges 11. Thank you very much. Uh, little faith is tough. I think they probably had faith, but fear is powerful. Okay. They absolutely had faith. They, they called on the carpenter to help them with the storm, right? They absolutely believed that Jesus could somehow help them, but they were freaked out. Why? Because they didn't know how powerful he was. Um, I have a good friend that went jobless for about a year, and he did really good. He just trusting God and just hoping, but he would just tell you, he was freaking out a lot during that year. What am I going to do? Am I going to get a job before this thing runs out? It, 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 what is my family going to do? Where, where do we have to move? I, what am I going to do? And then he got a job about a year later, right? Making more money than he did before, enjoying the job more than he did before. And he said this to me, if I just trusted God... I could have had a great vacation, right? And I wouldn't have had to worry. And I wouldn't have been so sad and so freaked out. I could have just had a vacation and enjoyed myself. What does trust look like to you? Does it look like peace? Does it look like joy? Or does it look like lots and lots of worrying? And so even when we trust, we'd like the guy who says, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Fair? So God says, do you trust me or not? It's a, I, I use trust as opposed to faith because we get it more. If I trust the chair will hold me up, I'll sit down. There's really no in between. I, I guess I might kind of gingerly get into it or something like that. But you either believe it or you don't, right? You either trust it or you don't. And if you keep bouncing back and forth, Jesus would say, oh, you of little faith. You're like a ship tossed and turned on the sea, Right? James talks about that in terms of answering prayer. And we don't truly trust what it is that we say we trust. And that is something we all struggle with. So Jesus says, follow me. Jesus says, trust me. And then next week we'll get into the Jesus, Jesus healing two demons and, um, or two men with demons in them and go from there. Uh, let me see if I can get to any more questions. Um, how long have the disciples been following Jesus when Jesus calmed the storm? I, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. Probably at that point, it could be a, up to a year or more. I mean, they had spent some time with them already. Uh, question on demons. What is the relation with demons and Nephilim? Nephilim were giants. Um, it's a really tall people that uh, inhabited the earth for a period of time. So demons are not Nephilim. Um, um, how the Nephilim came to be, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I just know that they were. So the only way demons can get in or get a hold of someone is for that person to know God and doubt so much 
Do demons control people? This is by fear. Okay, so generally speaking, the way the demons get a foothold is when you pursue sin of some sort and you stop trusting God and you start trusting whatever. And if you pursue that period, that, that, that way long enough, you give enough of an opening to Satan that sometimes demons come in and they reside. And whether with a foothold or whether possession, they get in. There's other kinds of things too. Uh, parents do crazy things to little kids. Um, they do black masses, which is a satanic ritual uh, that they do upon kids. Um, there's been a lot of cases of people I know that had that done as a child and they struggle with demon possession. Um, severe abuse can sometimes usher in um, that, that opening or that foothold. And so sometimes through no fault of the kids at all, right, they're just predisposed to such horrific things early on that somehow they get footholds. And beyond that, I'm not really sure how it all works. I just know that you can say in Jesus' name, Satan be gone, and they have to listen to you, okay? And so I'll equip you with Jesus because Jesus has power over all things. And it's not something that a believer has to struggle with because the reality is God puts protection around us and he gives us victory over them. And if you want to be protected from them, just don't pursue sin, right? And blow off God. And just stay close to him and, and, and he'll always keep you safe. Um, I wish I knew more about that, um, but there's just a lot I don't. I'm just sharing with you the parts that I do. Uh, last one. So the only, okay, we already, we already just read that one. Okay. Um, Enough demon talk. Let me pray. God, we love you so much. And I, I love the way you challenge us in Scripture. I, it's hard to trust you with everything. Life is hard, and we are control freaks, and we desperately desire to trust you. It's just, I don't know, things don't go our way, and, and things get hard, and, and we feel like we have to do it because you're not answering quick enough or Sometimes we don't know if you're interested. And, but God, it's always because we forget your promises and we forget that you're there and we forget that you're for us and not against us. We forget that you're working all things for the good of those who love you. We just, we just forget. And when we forget, we get scared, just like the disciples when they were on the boat. And when we get scared, we, we start to despair. And yet in those times, you come to us and you just say, I've got you. Trust me. I'm here for you. Give yourselves to me. And I can do anything. And in place of your fear, I'll give you peace. And in place of your weakness, I'll give you strength. And I will forgive. And I'll renew. And I'll give you everything. Such are the promises of God. So my friends, trust in Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.